Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Anne Thomas is a second-generation transgender, currently an actress, singer, talent manager, and producer. She's the founder of Transgender Talent, launched in May of 2015 to provide a safe place for transgender actors to be managed and to provide a focal point for the film and TV industry to go to when seeking transgender actors. In 2017, she began working towards producing her own properties, as there are so few opportunities for trans people. Anne is an executive producer and or full producer on multiple properties in development with a variety of producing partners. And Carol, Anne has a lot to share today, doesn't she? Yes, Claire, we have a lot to learn. Thank you for joining us, Anne. Thank you for having me. So we want to know if you would share with us the inspiration for starting the transgender talent and uh, agency and the mission behind the agency. Well, what happened was um, when I first moved to Los Angeles about uh, 12 years ago or so, uh, I saw a uh, casting call in Craigslist for a transgender actor, and I contacted them, and they said uh, they wanted, insisted that I be professionally trained, which was, to me, kind of silly because I did 20 years as a technical director in theater, so I had been working with actors for decades and uh, had studied it extensively. I just hadn't gone through formal training myself. Um, so I kind of brushed it off, and they, but they also said, yeah, there's only a few nationwide at this time. Like I think they said like a dozen or two dozen transgender performers up to that time over the prior 20 years, they said. And so they were just looking for new blood. I kind of blew it off and figured, ah, well, maybe they, you know, I, I'll just go in a different direction. So I did. And uh, a few years later, um, I uh, got a casting call that was sent to me about uh, a, they wanted a whole bunch of people for a transgender choir on Glee. And so I applied for that and was accepted, as were so many others. There was 197 in that scene. It was episode 607, which is where uh, Coach Beast comes out as trans. And uh, when I got there, there was a lot of people there. And uh, they had us line up by height, and I, I lined up at the very back of the uh, choir because I, I'm taller than a lot of them. And... Um, they pulled me out of the crowd. Uh, the director didn't put me down right behind uh, where Coach Beast ended up doing the scene. So I got a lot of attention. And uh, so when, I, when in talking with the casting director, Sandy Lisi, um, she basically said that it was very, very, very difficult for them to find transgender performers, and they had to put out a wide net nationwide. And truly, there was people as far away as New Jersey in that giant scene. Uh, that flew in just for that. 
And so they said, this is so hard trying to find you guys. So, uh, you know, and I started looking for an agent right after that scene. Couldn't find any that said anything about transgender or even LGBT at the time. And uh, so I, uh, so Sandy said, hey, can you make it so there's some way that we can find you guys? And so I started collecting names and stuff and found there was somebody in the group that wanted to help start a group like this with me, and we did. And so in May, which was a couple of months after that episode aired, we started Transgender Talent together. And so it was a place where, you know, casting directors could come and know for sure that they're getting transgender people for a show. So do you uh, put the word out to all of the, the, as many casting agents as you could to let them know that you were all set up, and uh, and also to the studios, I guess, right? Um, yeah, well, as a an an- business analyst, which is what I did for 20 years prior to that, I knew that I needed to look for whoever hired us, and that's yes. when I found that it was the casting directors, and then I found out about Casting Society of America. So I approached uh, them. Actually, they approached me with a casting call, and uh, it was for Wicked City on ABC. And uh, it was the first bigger casting call I ever saw come out from a major network with a CSA member casting it. And so uh, we had an interesting phone call after that. And then about, um, it was like six months later, that same uh, casting director called me back and said, uh, we've been watching you, and you've been submitting more transgender actors than the whole rest of the industry combined for transgender <laughs> casting calls. So, um, would, you know, can we talk about this? Because we're noticing that your people don't know how to do auditions. And so I'm like, okay. So we got together and spent four hours, I think it was, three or four hours at lunch at a Denny's, and I got to know Russell Bose through that, who at the time was the vice president of the CSA. And uh, they offered to, uh, they wanted to go launch a program to provide uh, auditioning lessons to minority groups, which we were the best ones ready at that time. Or we were, I say we were the ones that were ready the most at the time to actually facilitate that. So uh, we had a session with CSA, and they trained 70, I think it was, uh, transgender actors how to do auditioning. And it was all done for free over a two-day period. And later they did many other minority groups over the, the subsequent years. Wow, so wasn't that's, that wonderful? That's how, we got to, that's how we got to be known by CSA. Yes, and that's the place that really gets you the work, I guess. Yeah. It, that's yeah. your main source, right? Right, yeah. Well, um, and they're, they're in the, uh, and right now, because of the strike, it's the... Uh, uh, CCDA is more of the folks we tend to get, see breakdowns from, which is the Commercial Casting Directors Association, which is the directors who cast for uh, commercials. Uh, right, right. Okay, and so and the so the mission behind the agency then is to uh, train and help transgender get jobs in the industry. Right. Yeah, it's, well, broad, it's gotten much more broad over the years. We started out with just on-camera actors, and now we do voiceover, musicians, and, oh, what else? <laughs> we do consulting on uh, different projects, uh, you know, as far as their content, the script, and then we also have a production division as well. Well, tell us about the consulting uh, for a product and script. How does that work? 
Well, we get reached out to by uh, different folks who are like, hey, I've never cast anything like this before, or we have a script that's not locked yet that we'd like you to take a look at. I mean, that would be the basics of what we end up getting approached by. And in some, in some cases, we get producers approaching us and saying, we can't produce this because it's so um, centered around transgender people that we want somebody above the line in the project who is transgender who can help us with this and make it happen. And so we'll uh, sign on as producers or executive producers on their projects. Wonderful. Uh, great. Okay. So uh, tell us how people reach you. I want to make sure we get that here at the beginning of the show. Ah, okay. Um, we have a website, uh, transgendertalent.com, that you can go to and look at. Um, and then for singers and musicians, uh, we have keychangeensemble.org, which covers that aspect in more depth. Um, and on the on the main website, transgendertalent.com, you can find our email address for general contacts, which is contact at transgendertalent.com. Great. So. so let's talk about your own journey as a transgender person working in the entertainment industry. How has that been? Oh, boy, that's been interesting because um, I – at first tried to do some acting and I did do some stuff. I was on CBS Pure Genius for uh, an episode. Um, but, you know, I realized that's not really what I want to do, so I wanted to focus more on uh, doing the behind-the-scenes stuff. So I've created uh, videos and things like that for uh, both actors and writers and directors and all of those, all the different parts of a production to go through and, and study what it is that they need to include transgender people in their productions and for transgender people to get to be prepared to try and get into the industry properly. And then, um, uh, but we also have gone to a lot of uh, industry events, mixers, red carpets, all that stuff, um, but mainly the mixers um, that are put on the networking events uh, by various uh, studios and networks uh, throughout the industry because uh, we typically find that we're the only transgender people there. Um, and that's how you get to know people in this industry. It's not through, you know, hiring an agent and an agent gets you into stuff. Yeah, that's nice. But, um, and that, that even goes for writers and directors and producers and all that. They use agents too. But you, you tend to more get in with people that get to know you. So you go to these events to network with people and learn about them. They can learn about you and so on. I mean, we've met some really, really amazing people all the way to the top of the industry. I mean, I think probably one of the highlights was going to the um, Spider-Man Far From Home premiere, which we had an actor in that movie, so we were invited by production, and we met a lot of the top people in the industry, including Kevin Feige, the CEO of Marvel, and got to talk with him. And we talk with lots of other people. Now, this is the kind of things that we do. But I don't have a problem with meeting with people all the way at the top of the industry because that's I did uh, business consulting for about 20 years working with CEOs and of companies of all sizes. And so I'm used to dealing with them uh, on a pure basis where, you know, they're people just like everybody else and just treat them with respect and be nice and courteous and 
see where it goes. But that's how you get in with projects more than anything else is by who you know. So that's what you do is go to the various mixers and meetings and things like that. And that's what I always found. You know, I ran a company in Hollywood for 33 years, and it's really who you know. And you are only one or two people removed from everybody in Hollywood. All you have to do to someone is say, do you know so-and-so, so-and-so, or so-and-so, and they'll know one of those, right? It's so small oh, yeah. when you get into it, isn't it? And it's well, truly it's both, who you know. It's both small and huge because – um, you have to be careful that you're respectful for every, with everybody. Even if they uh, do something bad around you or to you, you still have to be nice because you may end up having to work with them someday. Um, but at the same time, it's a massive place. And if you do end up really not getting along with somebody, don't worry. There's, some, there's other parts of Hollywood that you can go to where you'll probably find people that you do get along with. So it's both big and small at the same time. Right. I understand. Okay. Well, what are some of the earliest positive representations of transgender people in the media that stand out for you that you can share with us? You know, I actually didn't pay too much attention to that for a lot of years. And so I've had to watch stuff from, you know, vintage shows and things. And honestly, one of the earliest representations I saw where it was actually a pretty good pretty good expression for the time, because this was in the 1970s, was uh, the episode arcs in the old TV series All in the Family, where there was a, a person on there who was exploring their gender identity. And, you know, it was a bad representation by today's standards, but a good representation for that era. I wish I had seen it back then, to be honest with you, because that's when I was questioning who I was, but I had no references to go by. I was mm-hmm. busy watching other shows at the time. <laughs> Okay, but that was good. Wow, that's back in the 70s. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, tell us about foreign films, because I know I've watched many foreign films. Even Fellini, I I saw transgender people in there years ago. It was just normal. It just, everything always seemed to fit and work together. Well, Okay, but it was an interesting question. My my expertise actually in the history of transgender people is more on the medical side because all of the cutting-edge research in transgender healthcare actually originated in Europe. Uh, Dr. Hirschfeld in Berlin was one example. He started his uh, uh, clinic in, I think it was, you know, 1918 or 19. And, uh, but he was predated by, uh, in 1886, by a medical book about it. And so it's been around and studied by physicians for years. Um, and most of it originated out of, out of Germany and the UK. And, um, and of course, during all that era, there was massive pushback by the right against the medical uh, stuff that Dr. Herschel was doing in Germany. And so... And it's eerily similar today to today, the way that's, that's playing out. But because it was so prominent back then, and really the film industry originated in Europe, um, because the first people doing movies were in Europe in the you know the 19th century, and so uh, naturally they would include trans people in film all the way back then, and they did. Um, I watched a uh, 
a super early cut, I think it was an early cut, of that uh, documentary called um, uh, Disclosure that's on Netflix. And um, the original version of it uh, goes back all the way to the turn of the of the 20th century. So over 100 years ago, showing footage from back then of people who, you know, we don't know if they were cross-dressers or they were transgender people or what, but they were in the silent films from the beginning. And so, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, you know, too much of a, of a reach to figure that there was trans people going all the way from the beginning. Yes. That's wonderful to know. So what are some of the unique challenges that transgender individuals face in the entertainment industry, particularly in terms of representation and opportunities? (laughs) Oh, boy, that's an interesting thing. Um, So first of all, there's developmental talent, which is uh, actors who don't have much in the way of credits or experience on camera. Um, and they have a hard time, regardless of what, who they are, whether they're, you know, white guys or they're any minority group, everybody has this challenge of getting past that stage of being uh, developmental talent because the agents and managers don't want to pick up anybody who, has, uh, who doesn't have a steady stream of bookings happening, happening already through their own efforts because that's what pays the bills. The agents and managers don't get any money unless you, the, the, the uh, actor gets a booking. And so they're hesitant to sign anybody that's developmental. And uh, so, but getting to that point on your own is, is challenging. So that's why you have to try and look through, you know, get yourself out there in every website you can as an actor. Um, but then when you are to that stage where you're getting the steady bookings, the team that you try and build, which starts with agents and managers, one or the other, and then you're adding a publicist and stylist on top of that, as well as others like social media people and all that, um, what they try and do is create a marketable image for the talent they're working with. And the problem is, is that most of those images you see are literally just that. They're a facade created for public consumption. And so that's what results in people being uh, typecast uh, as well, but it also gives steady worth to the individual. Um, but the problem is, is that when you're dealing with a lot of the talent, um, they have to conform to that. So they have to change the way they dress, the way they act, the way they present themselves on social media, the types of roles they go to. It. You become more and more controlled the further into Hollywood you go. And the problem with transgender people and non-binary people is that we're non-conformists. We've already just demonstrated that we're willing to give up everything, family, careers, friends, homes, etc., to live an authentic life. And to take that, that uh, mold that Hollywood uses and force it onto a transgender person with an image that the agents and managers and publicists dream up is a square peg and a round hole in most cases. There are trans people who will conform, but there's a lot that won't because they, we've learned that the best you is to be fully authentic, and that's when we blossom. That's when we flower, and the problem with um, trying to force us into a mold and force us to be a certain way 
once again restricts us. And so most of us don't want to do that. So we bang against that wall or that glass ceiling that's put over us, and we don't know what's happened. And so as a result, you'll see transgender people bouncing from agent to agent, manager to manager, publicist to publicist. You'll see that all over the industry amongst the trans community, and that's why. It's because the, uh, the problem is the high-level folks in Hollywood are all, you know, they're, they're older people. They're not used to that. And because that's what older generations have done is they've conformed to an image for, to have uh, the uh, success because that's what give, gave them that success. And so they expect everybody younger to do that. And the problem is everybody sees through those facades. I, I went through a course taught by um, Thelma Box, who was uh, uh, Dr. Phil's uh, uh, partner in a, in a business when he was back in Dallas. And, um, one thing we learned and part of, part of the exercise is what most, the vast majority of people can see through your facades in a matter of seconds. So what's the point? And so that's why I'm an open person, even though I'm a boomer like so many other leaders in, uh, in Hollywood are, yet I realize that the fakery that is done to create a public image is, uh, the, the, the public sees through it in most cases, but in not in all. And the thing is, is that Gen Z, the young folks, and Gen Alpha coming up behind them, are all looking for authenticity. They want it in not only in the, the way they're expressing their sexuality, gender identity, but also just in who they are. They, don't, they want to be open and honest with their feelings, and that's a lot of them want to be that way. That's why you're seeing a massive uptick in the number of people coming out who are younger as being LGBT is because of their seeking that authenticity. And so, um, honestly, trans people are on the cutting edge of that. If the agents, managers, and publicists at the higher levels would recognize that and let us be ourselves, then they will see more success in representing trans people in the industry. So it's kind of a, we gotta, we got to have a compromise here on this. So, um, <laughs> right. you know, anyway... Well, that's um, the old Hollywood, to take uh, a star, uh, you know, because that's the way it used to happen. What was it? So many stars, they found one star in a restaurant or in a uh, coffee shop and then someone uh, at a swimming pool, and they said, we can make you a star, and then they created an image and had you live with it to um, to build your brand. That's yeah, exactly. and that's the way Hollywood worked. But the problem is then um, we get put into that as trans people, and we don't want to have our whole career around that stereotype. And that, and, and so they're, they're typecasting trans and non-binary people into trans and non-binary roles only. And that's not what trans and non-binary people want to do. They want to play anything. They want to play a role. They don't care about the trans and non-binary part. So that's, that's another wall that we have to fight, fight past, is getting into non-LGBT roles. Right. Wow. Okay. This is really interesting. Uh, well, now with the new uh, rules that are coming out, right, uh, the rules for inclusivity, for starting in 2024, is that going to help you? Will that allow for you to be your true selves in some of these films? Well, 
the thing is with hiring, you know, as a producer, I see this stuff happening. And uh, you tend to want to hire people that you have already worked with and resonate with and who are just like yourself. That's why Hollywood is full of groups of the same kind of people, you know, old white guys all hang together, um, you know, and, and that's just because that's what they're comfortable with. And so, you know, if some of the folks do want to reach outside of that and be inclusive, but others don't, that's, and I think it comes down to uh, the fear of, of failure. If you don't bring together that perfect team that you know is going to do the job. So, they tend to bank on that, and that isn't necessarily the future because this country is becoming more and more of a melting pot as the years go by. You can't resist that. We can't stay in the past. We have to include other types of people. So by putting the rules on there, they're actually forcing people to go outside of that box that they put themselves in. And uh, so that way they do make sure that they bring in people who are just as capable or even more capable than their friends that they've been hiring over and over again. I mean, take a look at any of these um, people that you know of in the industry, and I won't name names if there's some that popped in my mind right away. Take a look at their IMDBs and then look at the projects they've been on. And you'll find, especially if they are like a lead person who like plays the lead role uh, has a, an ensemble cast that works with them on all their projects, look at all the behind-the-scenes people, and it's the same people time after time after time. And that's the problem is they're not expanding that and including other kinds of people with them. And I get it in that it's hard to get funding without following that pattern of, gee, this worked. But the problem is with that, um, you know, it, it's – there's, they got into the business that way potentially. I mean, one of the one of the ways they bring in people they have for years in Hollywood is to create an ensemble cast where they have one newcomer who's never done anything, as maybe even a lead in stuff, and uh, they'll surround surround that person with A-list actors, and suddenly they're, you know, you know, pushed way up in their quality and visibility in Hollywood. That one actor. A lot of the time, and they've been doing that for years with white guys, you know, so uh, they did it for decades. And so they've been getting away from that in recent years. But we need to realize that if you take a person who is capable but just hasn't worked with an ensemble like that, that they can grow through that experience, and they will. And so you have to look for people who are demonstrating that will to really move forward, that impetus, that, you know, not just a dream, but a passion for whatever they're, uh, that they're doing, whether it's acting or producing or directing or, um, you know, props and sets, any of that stuff. Um, if they just would look for that, they could really uh, increase that inclusivity. And then it won't sound, look so uh, token when you have people coming in who really know what the hell they're doing. Right, right, I understand. Okay, well, let's talk about um, success stories of individuals who you've represented at the Transgender Talent. Tell me some of those. Well, let's see. We were up to get a transgender person in a Marvel movie in a fairly major role. There was some 
trans background actors in prior movies, but we got uh, a uh, an actor in as one of the students on uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, and so he was in the entire uh, entire movie where anywhere you saw the uh, uh, the students that that accompanied Peter Parker. Um, so we got that to happen. That was quite a few years ago now. Um, then uh, we facilitated Zoe and Luna getting into the Craft Legacy as a lead. Um, that was really epic. It would have been really epic if they had released that in theaters, which had been originally planned, but COVID hit, and it ended up going streaming instead, which was a big disappointment for us, but we could understand that they needed to get it out. And uh, then we got... Uh, uh, a guy into the the good doctor. Uh, a lot of people have seen that episode where he was the first trans guy ever in that series, and it was he was a pregnant man was the way they advertised that episode. And um, so those were three of the really major things that we've done. And there's other success stories we've had in other areas um, that are less visible, but those are the three that we've had over the years that have probably had the most publicity around them. Wonderful, wonderful. So tell us what takes uh, steps you take to ensure that your talent uh, is represented fairly. Oh, boy. Um, well, like I said earlier, we do, we do look at scripts, um, and... It used to be we'd read everything ahead of time, uh, which is what caught CSA's attention, uh, the Casting Society, because um, nobody had ever told anybody in Hollywood, no, we're not going to let you have any of our actors unless the script is properly representing us. I was the first to say that, apparently. Um, And, uh, I mean, shoot. Before we started, almost all the trans roles were nothing but either – uh, a mass murderer or a, uh, you know, a butt of a joke, stuff like that. It was really insulting to us and really stereotypical, and it always followed the same stereotypes. So we just said, well, nobody wants to play those that are trans, so we don't mind telling you. If you write a script like that, send it to us and ask for people, we're not going to give you anybody. And <laughs> so they, uh, they were like, oh, you know, so that's why we got the attention of the industry really fast. And so they stood up for that. Um, and, I mean, that also happens with other groups, too. too. Like, shortly after we back got out of media, which was like eight years ago, somebody from the uh, Arabic actors community wrote me and said, you guys are such an inspiration because all we ever get cast for is terrorist roles, and we want to do the same <laughs> things. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to follow your footsteps. Cool. I'm glad I inspired you because, yeah, that isn't right. Um, so, um Anyway, uh, so we pre-screen the scripts, but nowadays uh, most of the scripts tend to be pretty good, and so we tend to pass that over to the actors themselves to see if they're okay with it, and most of them will read them and decide whether they want to audition instead of us having to pre-screen everything. And then um, we watch the trades, and we look for um, projects that are like uh, going into development that we think people could be in that are trans. So we'll reach out to projects that we've heard of and say, hey, how would you like to have a trans lead for this? And so, and I'm talking even major stuff. Uh, we, I don't hesitate to do that. And we do get a little bit of attention with that, and it's helped. Um, 
and then uh, the other thing that we do is we have our production division because we uh, found starting in 2017 that there just wasn't enough shows. So we started going into development, working, learning how to develop shows back then with some really good folks to mentor us and how to pitch stuff. So we started pitching shows back then that were uh, with trans leads and trans stories and stuff like that. In mostly the majors, we didn't focus that much on the indies at the time. Now we've kind of expanded that. We are working with the indie world as well as the majors and coming up with stories and stuff like that and uh, scripts. You know, so that's really uh, how we've gone about doing this because, honestly, when Pose quit being shot, it, they were hiring so many trans people each year for that uh, series that when that ended, that series ended, the number of trans roles in the industry dropped significantly, like I think around 17%. And so wow. as a result, there isn't enough work. If you're typecast as a trans person, you're not going to get enough work to pay the bills, to pay your rent, you, you know, so you're stuck working at Starbucks or some other job and, you know, the, where, they're, where they're inclusive of trans folks. And so um, what we do is, um, uh, so we're trying to develop shows where we have uh, trans folks in them that can be paid at good rates. And so that's what we're doing. Wonderful. Uh, tell us some of the common misconceptions or stereotypes that exist about transgender people. Oh, boy. Probably the one that just never seems to go away is we're not drag queens. People okay. don't understand the difference. Drag queens are uh, have traditionally been, and not always, but have traditionally been gay guys who dress up and outrageous costumes and makeup and hair to go on stage and perform. After they're done with their performance, they take it off, change back to a guy, and go home. That's not what transgender people are. Transgender people have a medical condition that we were born with where our brains desire hormones at levels our bodies don't produce, in most cases, not all, but in most cases. And so we present as the gender we identify with 24-7. You know, unless we're acting, we have to put on a costume, of course. But <laughs> anyway, it's, we, we live that life 24-7. Uh, we don't get dressed up in, in giant wigs, fancy dresses, and gaudy makeup to go to the grocery store and go shopping. Think about it. When's the last time you saw a drag queen in a grocery store shopping? I actually had a dignified footage where somebody did it as a gag on, on YouTube, and it is out there. But we don't do that. We try and blend in. So we're not drag queens. We actually um, have to have those hormones to survive, literally. It, it, it helps us with our mental acuity and our creativity and everything else. And we're not, we don't have a mental illness. That's been proven since, I think, the 1920s, over 100 years. They've proven it's not a mental illness we have. So that's the biggie, is that we're not drag queens. And so it's completely different. It would be the same as writing a script for any other type of role. It's just, you know, we don't dress up fancy. Now, the other thing is that we can, that we can only play trans roles. Well, we're not. we're not. We're actors. We can put on any kind of costume. We can play whatever you want. You know, I can play the modern major general in, in the, that old play, or I can play the, uh, you know, I can play a woman. Any of those is fine. 
uh, we don't just have to play trans roles. The other thing is, is that we're not all a bunch of self-centered egomaniacs. That's replete in Hollywood already. So if you're pointing the finger at us that that's what we are, look in the mirror. Almost everybody in Hollywood is self-centered <laughs> to some degree. That's why you want to be on camera, right? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, tell us about um, what you plan for the future. Where are you going with your company? Uh, well, we're finding that we really need to focus more on, on content development and working on getting shows out there. Um, so we've, uh, we're trying, we're looking heavily at all of that stuff. Um, and so what we, uh, we have like 20 projects in development now. And uh, probably the one that's the biggest is we're doing a TV music special that's, uh, that we're working on. And it's still in developmental hell, as they call it, because that's a nightmare trying to navigate all that stuff. And we've got major attachments already, um, and it's uh, it's coming together. It's going to take a while, but um, you know we've been working on it for a while already. But we're we've uh, it you know it's it's going to be huge. It's uh, it's going to make a big big splash because I mean literally. Not much else can be done right now anyway, um, although there's starting to be some ways I'm seeing in the, in the trades I just saw today about ways around that for the indie producers um, and indie productions in general, especially if SAG goes on strike, that's a problem. But uh, we're doing something that's not scripted, that's uh, music-oriented, so we should be able to navigate through all this even with major folks involved without conflicts with any of the striking uh, unions. Oh, that so sounds good. Well, do you have a log line on it that you could share? Oh, I didn't think to bring that up on my computer screen. I can bring that up uh, and read it to you. It's a uh, – uh, uh, let me see here really quick. Uh, here we go. I'll bring up the treatment for it. What happens when you bring together the biggest crowd of transgender divas to set the world's record for the largest choir ever to actually sing on stage? <laughs> wow, that is wonderful. Yeah, see, that scene on Glee was lip sync. That was not the people you see on that scene singing. That was a professional choir that was recorded a week or two earlier. Um, and everybody lip-synced to it. We were singing our brains out. I mean, it was lovely. I mean, it was really a rush to sing together, but that wasn't our voices you were hearing in that episode. Um, so, And it was really cool that the, the uh, person who uh, sang the lead in front of the choir just won a Tony Award uh, a week or two ago, whenever that was. So, oh, great. Yeah, so... But that's uh, that's basically what we're doing is we're we're going to set the world's record for the largest actual transgender choir to sing together. So we even yeah. have yeah. we we even have a, a chamber orchestra coming to play with us. So that's going to oh, be really cool. Oh, how exciting! Oh yeah. my gosh, that that'll make a great film. Okay, well tell us again how people can reach you, Anne. Okay, so they can go to our website, transgendertalent.com, and they can also uh, write me at, or us, because somebody else handles this email address, but it's contact at transgendertalent.com. And that's on the website. 
So if you don't, if I got it wrong, you can go find it on the website. So, and but please, people, don't try and direct message me on social media. That's I don't like that because I can't see it ever again. It's not searchable in my email. So I'm one of these old school folks. You know, I am okay. a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sound young, very young, and inspired. And it is inspiring to hear how you're putting all this together. You are a pioneer. Yeah, I yeah, it's it's crazy being a pioneer, but I came from a pioneer family. We were my family was on the on the Mayflower. So we've been on this continent 400 years and we kept moving west. Every time the <laughs> the country expanded, we ended up on this coast in 1875, traveled the Oregon Trail. Wow, how exciting. Well, all right, Ann, best of luck to you, and I hope that we can talk to you again maybe a year and see where you're going and how it's improved. Sure, that'd be great. Okay, thanks a lot. Best of luck. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you, Claire. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.